Living God, your good news is so wondrous, so magnificent that we struggle to comprehend it, to claim it as our own. Give our hearts the wisdom to embrace what our minds cannot grasp. Send your spirit to assure us of your resurrection promise. Amen. In the novel Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel writes a fictional story set in modern day of a deadly flu that spread rapidly over the earth and the collapse of civilization that followed. The story follows the lives of a constellation of characters who, having survived the pandemic, are still living 20 years after the collapse. It is referred to as the collapse because nothing about life before the pandemic held together. Only the characters old enough to remember what life was like before the flu remember that there was a time when you walked into a room and flipped on a switch and the room filled with light. You left your garbage and bags on the curb and a truck came and transported it to some invisible place. When you were in danger, you called for the police. Hot water poured from faucets. You lifted a receiver or pressed a button on a telephone and you could speak to anyone. All the information in the world was on the internet and the internet was all around you, drifting through the air like pollen on a summer breeze. One character named Clark had been 50 when the flu wiped out most of the population of the earth. Now he was 70. He has spent the past 20 years living in the Severn City Airport, where the flight he was on 20 years ago had to make an emergency landing. Like other survivors, he ended up making a settlement where he had been temporarily stranded. The author writes, Toward the end of his second decade in the airport, Clark was thinking about how lucky he had been. Not just the mere fact of survival, which was of course remarkable in and of itself, but to have seen one world end and another begin and not just to have seen the remembered splendors of the former world, the space shuttles and the electrical grid and the amplified guitars, the computers that could be held in the palm of a hand, and the high-speed trains between cities, but to have lived among those wonders for so long, to have dwelt in that spectacular world for 50 years of life, Sometimes he lay awake in Concourse B of the Severn City Airport and thought, I was there. And the thought pierced him through with an admixture of sadness and exhilaration. Over time, Clark collected objects of pre-pandemic life, cell phones, laptops, stilettos, car engines, coins, magazines and newspapers, passports, driver's licenses, and credit cards of people who had lived at the airport and died. He piled these objects in the Sky Miles Lounge and gave it the name 
the Museum of Civilization. Sometimes young people who had been born in the airport came into the museum and would ask him about the stuff. And though he always tried to explain all of it, he often found himself saying, it's hard to explain. There was a school in Concourse C. At school, the children memorized abstractions about the airplanes outside that once flew through the air, satellites that beamed information down to Earth, goods that traveled in ships and airplanes across the world, and the maps that they were shown. The adults teaching the children also found it all hard to explain. As time passed and more children were born, parents began to wonder, does it make sense to teach these kids about the way things were? They debated for what end children would need to know about these things, since it all seemed like science fiction to them. After such a collapse of civilization, it was not as though they could begin to reconstruct things as they had once been. Was there nothing about the past that was worth passing down that could be useful or meaningful to a future that has to start from scratch? This imaginative account of a pandemic and a resulting worldwide collapse of civilization, its entire infrastructure and all of its institutions calls into question the assumptions we have about any kind of progress society makes over time, social, moral, cultural, scientific, and technological. It calls into question any assumptions we may have had that lessons learned the hard way by earlier generations will be passed on to and built upon by successive ones. According to Emily St. John Mandel's novel, it takes an apocalypse to get us to recognize the necessity for each generation, for every person to be educated, to have convictions. Each person has to weigh and witness to what really matters. Each person has to go through the great ordeal. The scripture lesson we read this morning comes from the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic in genre, this final book of the Bible speaks about a time when former things will come to an end, when the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. Couched in images and symbols with which we are sorely unfamiliar, we encounter such strangeness in this book that we can hardly understand it. It almost seems like a fantastical science fiction. John of Patmos, who wrote the book of Revelation, was writing not long after the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, leaving the Jewish people in complete crisis. The temple had been the place where heaven and earth met, where God dwelled. It was built with permanence in mind and had lasted over six centuries. It was the center of Jewish religious, cultural, and national identity. 
So when the place and institution so central and foundational to their existence was destroyed, the Jewish people had to establish wholly new existential coordinates. This is what John's revelation offered, an alternative vision of purpose and meaning, one in which a lamb, not a lion, was salvific to life. In his vision, the lamb was at the center of the throne, and those standing before the throne and before the lamb have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their clothes their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have been in need of shelter. They have known hunger and thirst and scorching heat. They have shed tears from their eyes. We Christians are wont to imagine that God's job is to keep us and our loved ones safe from all harm. This misguided belief causes more lives of faith to crumble than any other that I have known. John's vision clearly corrects this. He lets us know that pain and suffering will be a part of any life. All of us will suffer. Salvation in Christ doesn't make us immune from suffering. Instead, Christ calls us to witness to God's salvific love in spite of it. In 1946, only 11 months after he was liberated from a concentration camp, psychiatrist Viktor Frankl delivered a series of public lectures compiled later into a book entitled, Yes to Life, In Spite of Everything. For three years, Viktor Frankl had endured Auschwitz, Dachau, and Buchenwald. His parents, brother, and pregnant wife were killed in the concentration camps. Knowing intimately the spiritual state people were in, he wrote, Today, our attitude to life hardly has any room for belief in meaning. We are living in a typical post-war period. The state of mind and the spiritual condition of an average person today is most accurately described as spiritually bombed out. This alone would be bad enough, but it is made even worse by the fact that we are overwhelmingly dominated at the same time by the feeling that we are yet again living in a kind of pre-war period. The invention of the atomic bomb is feeding the fear of a catastrophe on a global scale, and a kind of apocalyptic, end-of-the-world mood has taken hold of the last part of the second millennium. We have become pessimistic, he writes. We no longer believe in progress in itself, in the higher evolution of humanity as something that could succeed automatically. Today we know what human beings are capable of. As apocalyptic as it was, it's not surprising that the Holocaust discredited any assumptions people held about humanity's progress or civilization's progress. 
In spite of everything, Frankel pressed on to affirm the responsibility, not of the human race, but of each person, to be informed, to weigh matters for themselves, to be convicted and to act on their convictions. When Frankel encountered world-weary people, people who saw their own lives as meaningless and who no longer expected anything of life, he counseled them to perform a 180-degree turn in their thinking. Instead of asking, what can I expect from life? He counseled them to ask, what does life expect from me? It is not we who are permitted to ask about the meaning of life, he wrote. It is life that asks the question, that directs questions at us. We are the ones who are questioned. We are the ones who must answer. Living itself means nothing other than being questioned. Our whole act of being is nothing more than responding to, of being responsible to, life. This posture toward life is what I believe each of us is called to adopt when God calls us to give witness. It is the 180-degree turn that Job, bitterly lamenting all that had befallen him, had to make when out of a whirlwind God confronted him with question after question. Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. It is what we find when the resurrected Christ questions Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? And upon receiving Peter's answer, instructs him, then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. What does life expect of us? We can only answer this within the specific situations of our lives. Your answer will be different from mine. What you are responsible to do is different from what I or someone else is daily responsible to do. But everyone has responsibilities specific to who each person is and the situation each person is in. In John's vision, Every person has to come through a great ordeal. Every person has to give witness. What Christ enables is a witness that, in spite of everything, says yes to life. The truth of the matter is that we're not always ready and able to give such a witness. There are times when we are suffering such painful loss that it feels especially hard. I've learned that after the death of a loved one, it's not unusual for a person not to come to worship. At such times, the witness of worship can feel just too overwhelming. I remember the good and moving surprise I felt when one Sunday, 
while beginning worship, I saw a faithful member of the congregation slip into the back of the sanctuary. Not that many weeks prior, he had lost his family in a fire. When after the service, I told him how glad I was that he had been in worship with us. He nodded and said, I'm here. It's important for me to be here. And then choking up a bit, he said, I can't sing just yet, but I need to be with all of you when you are singing. That is the witness we can provide one another. We can sing of resurrection hope, affirming it even when it seems as though our whole world has come to an end. Amen.